quick recap before we proceed. I ha- there were three questions that I had to understand and solve in my mind to understand the truth about God. And they were, firstly, is Christ the eternal God like the Father? Secondly, is the Holy Spirit an individual person in his own right? And thirdly, is the Godhead part of the pillars of our faith, which the Lord led our pioneers to establish? Now, we've looked at the first two in the previous session, and we saw very clearly from inspiration that the answer is a resounding yes. But what about the pioneers? This is a very big emphasis in the One True God movement, the pioneers and the Godhead. So let's dive in and find out. This presentation is based on chapters 7 and 8 of my book, where I go into this in much detail. Um, and if you want to get copies of the quotes and letters that I refer to in this presentation, you'll find them all in the book. So why is this such an important question for me in my journey, this idea of the Godhead being part of the pillars of our faith? Well, consider this Statement here by Sister White. She says, Men and women will arise professing some new light or some new revelation whose tendency is to unsettle faith in the old landmarks. Their doctrines will not bear the test of God's word, yet souls will be deceived, false reports will be circulated, and some will be taken in this snare. For years, I believed that our church had forsaken the old landmarks established in the early days by accepting a false view of God. This is what I believed. And, it, and this is the punchline which the One True God movement will be put forward to you in the context of the history of our pioneers. They will say that the church has apostatized from the truth. But is this the case? And this question I wanted to answer. So the question we need to ask is, what are the old landmarks? Because this is key to understanding what Sister White is saying in these quotes. Well, thankfully, God has not left us to guess regarding this question. In the book 1888 Messages on page 518, Ellen White clearly defines the old landmarks. She lists five doctrinal pillars of our faith as the landmarks, and they are Number one, 1844 and the cleansing of the sanctuary. Number two, the three angels' messages. Number three, the physical sanctuary in heaven. Number four, the Sabbath. And number five, the non-immortality of the soul or the state of the dead. And then she says, after, after listing these here, she says, I can call to mind nothing more that can come under the head of the old landmarks. All this cry about changing the old landmarks is imaginary. So no mention of the Godhead here, is there? But I can think of many more key doctrines of our faith that are not listed in this list. Can you? Yeah. Well, what about salvation through Jesus Christ alone? What about the literal return of, of Christ? What about the Bible as the inspired word of God? Why aren't these in the list? Because these are not landmark statements for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Notice the statement here. No line of our faith is to, that has made us what we are is to be weakened. 
we have the old landmarks of truth, experience and duty and we just stand firm in defence of our principles in full view of the world. Now what is a landmark? A landmark is a reference point that helps you orientate yourself when you're navigating. It keeps you on track. And these doctrines are landmark doctrines. They are distinctive doctrines that stand out, that separate the Adventist church from all the other Protestant churches out there. These five points are unique to Seventh-day Adventists. There is no church that has all five of these pillars. Notice that righteousness by faith is not even in there. We're going to talk about more of this later. This was something that was added to the foundation. It's not part of the foundation. So where did the understanding, where did the pioneer understanding of the Godhead come from? You know, Ellen White writes that the pioneers spent many days and nights in prayer, studying the Bible to cement these landmark truths that, that she listed here. And I, and I was led to believe, as an anti-Trinitarian, that the Godhead was part of those doctrines that were established in the early days. And if you read the writings of the proponents of this doctrine, this is what they'll tell you. They'll tell you that, and they'll quote the pioneers, saying that they studied and they prayed and these truths were established then. But when I, I looked into it, I discovered something surprising. I discovered that James White, Joseph Bates, Uriah Smith and other very prominent leaders in the Advent movement came from the Christian Connection. This is the first religious movement in America. Now, what did they believe regarding the Godhead? This is a quote from an old religious encyclopedia published in 1882, and it says, commenting on the Christian connection, but although the Bible was their only authoritative rule of faith and practice, yet the general characteristics of their belief may be determined. They were anti-Trinitarians, yet called Christ a divine saviour and acknowledged the Holy Spirit as the power and energy of God. Isn't that interesting? This is exactly what the SDA, Seventh-day Adventist pioneers, believed. And when you compare the writings of the Christian connection with the writings of the pioneers, you'll find that they both believed that Christ was literally begotten of the Father and that the Holy Spirit is not a person like the Father and the Son, but the power and energy and mind of God. I have all the quotes in my book, by the way. The pioneer understanding is not part of the distinctive doctrines of the Adventist church. This doctrine, along with other doctrines like Sunday worship, were brought with the pioneers from the president churches, which they left. So we need to be very, very careful when we accept this doctrine as truth because it's not a distinctive doctrine and it's a hand-me-down from, from the president movement. So we need to be very, very careful. We can't just accept it because the pioneers believed it. They were advancing in their belief and understanding of God, just like we are. And what's more, the pioneers did not have a set doctrine on the Godhead, contrary to popular opinion. Take a look at the, 19, the 1872 fundamental beliefs. This was the first statement that the church that they released in the early days. And, it, and the preamble says this, In presenting to the public this synopsis of our faith, we wish to have it distinctly understood that we have no articles of faith, creed or discipline aside from the Bible. We do not put this forth as having any authority with our people, 
nor is it designed to secure uniformity among them as a system of faith, but is a, belief, but is a brief statement of what is and has been with great unanimity held by them. So this statement of beliefs was not binding. It was developing. And this here is the statement. These two points are the section in the 1872 Statement of Beliefs that deal with the Godhead. Number one, there is one God, a personal spiritual being, the creator of all things, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, infinite in wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, truth and mercy, unchangeable and everywhere present by his representative, the Holy Spirit. Number two, that there is one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Eternal Father, by the one by whom God created all things and by whom they do consist. Now, does anyone disagree with this statement? No. There's nothing in our current church's belief that would disagree with this statement. It's very broad and open to individual interpretation. And this is because the church as a body was still developing in this area of the Godhead. They had come together on the common ground of the landmark doctrines that we read earlier. The other areas of the faith were still in development. Let's take a look and see how the, the pioneers developed in their understanding of doctrine. Then, Firstly, we have Sunday to Sabbath. Prior to 1846, Ellen White, which was Ellen Harmon at the time, and most of the pioneers still worshipped on Sunday. Joseph Bates was actually the one that introduced the Sabbath to the Advent movement. They resisted at first because they thought that Bates was focusing too much on the fourth commandment. But then God showed Ellen White in vision that this, the fourth commandment was actually the center of the ten. And after that, they accepted the Sabbath. And then we have health reform. In the early days, the pioneers did not think it was wrong to eat pork. And James White says here, We do not by any means believe that the Bible teaches that it's that pork's improper use in the gospel dispensation is sinful. But then God showed Ellen White in a vision that meat, especially unclean meat, is wholly unfit for human consumption. So the pioneers abandoned the practice of eating meat, and, and particularly pork. And then as the church grew, that many of the pioneers had an incorrect understanding of the law of God and righteousness by faith. Their emphasis was too heavy on the law. And they, Ellen White said that many had lost sight of Jesus. So, so God sent a message to the pioneers through Elders Jones and Wagner to help them to understand the truth regarding salvation. So not surprisingly, we find a progression in the pioneers' understanding of God. For example, Uriah Smith at one point believed that Christ was a created being, like the angels. And, and this is taken from Thoughts Critical and Practical on the book of Revelation. And it says, Moreover, he is the beginning of the creation of God, not the beginner, but the beginning of the creation, the first created being, dating his existence far back before any other created thing, being or thing next to the self-existent and eternal God. But 17 years later, when he republished the book as Thoughts on Daniel and Revelation, he said, Others, however, and we more properly think, take the word to mean agent or efficient cause, which is one of the definitions of the word, understanding that Christ is the agent through whom 
God created all things, but he himself came into existence in a different manner, as he is called the only begotten of the Father. It would seem wholly inappropriate to apply this expression to any created being in the ordinary sense of the term. So you can see here that Uriah Smith is progressing in his understanding of God. So the question we need to ask is, if we're going to accept the pioneer understanding of truth, at what point did the pioneers have it all together? We're not given any clear line as to when the pioneer understanding of, about God, or anything for that matter, was correct. We were, they were growing in their experience just like we are. So it's not safe to base our understanding on the pioneers. We need to base our understanding on the word of God. Amen? Amen. Man changes with the wind. Now what about Ellen White? Before Ellen White was an Adventist, she was a Methodist. And the Methodists believe in the Trinity, Trinity doctrine, much like the rest of the President churches, which is three persons, note this, three persons in one substance, not three distinct beings. T take a look at this. This is from the Methodist website. I, I took this myself from the Methodist website. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts, of infinite power, wisdom and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now this is the Trinity that the pioneers opposed. Here are some quotes from the pioneers. Joseph Bates, Respecting the Trinity, I concluded that it was an impossibility for me to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, was also the Almighty God, the, fa the Father, one and the same being. So Joseph Bates says, It was impossible for me to believe that the Father and the Son were both the same being. And obviously we both believe that. We believe the Father and the Son are distinct persons, don't we? James White, Jesus prayed that his disciples might be one as he was one with his father. This prayer did not contemplate one disciple with 12 heads, but 12 disciples made one in object and effort in the cause of their master. Neither are the father and the son parts of a three-one God. They are distinct beings, yet one in design and accomplishment of redemption. Can you say amen to that? This is what the pioneers believed. They believed that the Father and the Son were distinct persons, contrary to what the President Church believed in saying that the Father and the Son were the same being. Now, when we study Ellen White, the early writings of Ellen White, she said the same thing. She emphasized that the Father and the Son were distinct persons. Take a look at this. I've often seen the lovely face of Jesus, that he is a person. I asked him if his father was a person and had a form like himself. And Jesus said, I am in the express image of my father's person. I've often seen that the spiritual view took away the glory of heaven and in many minds the throne of David and the lovely person of Jesus had been burned up in the fire of what? Spiritualism. Now note that word because we're going to come back to it. So in her early writings, Ellen White emphasized the fact that the Father and the Son were distinct persons. This is the error that the pioneers had just come out of, the idea of three persons in one substance. But as you read her writings and study them, you'll see a progression in, in clarity 
as time progressed. And this is the way God works. God does not flood the early church with every ray of light at once because it would overwhelm them. The pioneers came from the Christian connection. They, many of them believed that the Holy Spirit was not a person, so they were not ready for that truth yet. So God emphasized the fact that the Father and the Son were distinct persons. Then, as time progressed, we see a, a, an increasing clarity in Ellen White's writings. We've looked at these statements already in the previous session, but I want you to notice that these statements do not contradict the earlier statements. They are simply adding to it. First, notice the dates, 1899, 1893. This is later on, where Ellen White said in her early writings that Father and the Son are distinct persons. Then, as time progressed, she adds that the Holy Spirit is also a distinct person. And we see this same um, increasing clarity in Ellen White's writings regarding the divinity of Christ as well. For example, this statement here comes from Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1. And it says, and this is speaking in the context of Lucifer and the rebellion, the great creator assembled the heavenly host that he might in the presence of all the angels confer special honor upon his son. The son was seated on the throne with the father and the heavenly throng of the holy angels was gathered around him. The father then made known that it was ordained by himself that his son should be equal with himself so that whatsoever the presence of his son, it was his own presence. The word of the son was to be obeyed as readily as the word of the father. His son he had invested with authority to command the heavenly host. Now, if you take this statement on its own, you could come to the conclusion that the father at that point bestowed divinity on Christ and kind of brought him up to this level of God. But when you read this, the same book published as Prophets and Patriarchs and Prophets, she clarified the statement by saying there had been no change in the position or authority of Christ. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ made it necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. But this had been the same from the beginning. Many of the angels were, however, blinded by Lucifer's deceptions. And sadly, many people are becoming blinded today by Lucifer's deceptions regarding the Godhead. But this original statement was not wrong. This new statement just adds more information to clarify the issue. And we, we see this an increasing clarity in Ellen White's writings regarding the pre-existence of Christ. We've read all these statements earlier, but I want you to notice that these are clearly showing us that she calls Christ self-existent, eternal, unchangeable, original, unborrowed, underived life. If you have an open mind, the evidence is simply overwhelming. True, there are some statements that can be interpreted to say the opposite. But when you study them in context and compare them with clear statements like this, the truth is evident. In fact, I have two chapters in my book dedicated to expounding some of these more difficult to understand statements regarding the Holy Spirit and the nature of Christ. So all these clear statements that Ellen White had or stated regarding God had an impact upon the understanding about pioneers. But the question is, when did that change take place? How did it impact them? Anti-Trinitarians would like us to believe that leaders in the church waited until after all the pioneers and Ellen White died off the scene and then they started this 
this train of changing our church's doctrine from what it was before to what it believes now. Now, is this true? Take a look at this. More recently, as I was studying this topic, I discovered something very interesting. And this really blew me away when I first discovered it. This here is a, a summary of the development of the Godhead in the Statement of Beliefs from the Adventist Church. The, we've read the 1872 statement, which basically says that there is one God everywhere present by his representative, the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is the, the Son of the Eternal God. This is what it said in the 1872. Then in 1931, the, the, this is the next statement that was released. There was one in, in between that, but it said exactly the same thing. But in 1931, we see a change in the Adventist Statement of Beliefs. And it said that the Godhead, or Trinity, consists of the Eternal Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Eternal Father, and the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. This is the first time we see it appearing in official Adventist literature. And then in 1981, it was expanded again to say the Trinity, there is one God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. So 1931 is pinpointed as the date when the apostasy started by one true God movement. But is this really true? Here is the statement. This is, this is the 1931 Statement of Beliefs, point two, which deals with the Godhead. What most people don't realise is that this statement you read here was not written in 1931. It was actually, that's when it appeared as the official statement. It was actually, it was actually written in 1913 by a man by the name of F.M. Wilcox. Now, F.M. Wilcox was a man highly trusted by Ellen White. He was on the original board of five men that Ellen White picked to be trustees of her writings after she passed away. He was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, administrator and editor of the Review and Herald. And in 1913, Wilcox wrote what would, would become the 1931 Statement of Beliefs. And it was written in an article, in the, it was published, I should say, in the Review and Herald in the same year, in an article titled, The Message for Today. And this is how it reads. For the benefit of those who may desire to know more particularly the candid features of the faith held by this denomination, we shall state that the Seventh-day Adventists believe, one, in the divine trinity. This trinity consists of the eternal Father, a personal spiritual being, omnipotent, omniscient, infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, wisdom and love, of the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the eternal Father, through whom all things were created, and through, him, and through whom the salvation of the redeemed hosts will be accomplished. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the one regenerating agency in the work of redemption. This is pretty much word for word what appears in the 1931 Statement of Beliefs. What's interesting is this is here is a scan of the original Review and Herald article as, as it was published in 1913. And the message for today, that's the, the title there. And you can see here, the Divine Trinity, that's where it's mentioned. Look here. Statement of Ellen White follows it. So obviously Ellen White was around and alive and would have seen and read this statement. So if this statement is the start of the apostasy, then therefore the apostasy started in 1913 under the nose of the prophet. 
And she said nothing about it. But what I believe is that this is not apostasy, but an advancement in truth. This clearly shows that the pioneers' change of thinking started much earlier than people would like to, us to believe that it did. In fact, there is more evidence coming out showing that the pioneers softened on their stance of the Trinity in the later years. And here are a couple of statements. In the formula for baptism, the name Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is associated with the Father and the Son. If the name can be used thus, why, not, why could it not properly stand as part of the tr same Trinity in the hymn of praise, praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost? So Smith is saying, you know, if we can use the, the term Father, Son and Holy Spirit in the baptismal um, formula, why can't we you know, sing the hymn? Which is fair enough logic to me. But what I find really interesting about this statement is that it appears that the pioneers, when they baptised people, baptised in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Unlike the anti-Trinitarians who, who think this is apostasy and they say that we need to be baptised in the name of Jesus. And I've attended baptisms where anti-Trinitarians were conducting baptisms and they always baptised in the name of Jesus. They will not use the name Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But it seems like they are actually at odds with the pioneers on this one. And Stephen Haskell wrote in his book, um, Story of the Prophet Daniel, he wrote, Gabriel was only an angel upheld by the same power that sustained John. And he would not for one moment allow John to be deceived by thinking that he was part of the great trinity of heaven and worthy of worship of mankind. This is written in 1905. So clearly, and there's many more statements, I've only given you two, I could, could have given you more. Clearly, the pioneers changed their understanding of the Godhead much earlier than what anti-Trinitarians would like us to believe. This just clearly shows that we're not dealing with apostasy here, we're dealing with the development of truth. So, so far, the evidence... I believe is very convincing. But there was n another question that I had to solve in my mind. And that was re regarding Dr. Kellogg and the Holy Spirit. You see, the anti-Trinitarians claim that Dr. Kellogg believed in the Trinity and that Ellen White attacked him or, or, or confronted him over this issue and that it was the, the whole Omega and Alpha that she talked about is all related to the Trinity. And therefore, they, they go as far as to say that the Alpha that Ellen White spoke about was the Trinity Doctrine. And therefore, the Omega, which Ellen White said would follow, is the, is the Church's current position. Now, that's a pretty serious charge. So we need to address this. We need to look and see what is the truth of the matter. In the year 1904, Ellen White wrote the following... In the book, Living Temple, there is presented the Alpha of Deadly Heresies. The Omega will follow and will be received by those who are, who are not willing to heed the warning that God has given. It all started with a famous, well-respected man by the name of John Harvey Kellogg. Dr. Kellogg came to believe that God was in nature, in the trees, in the flowers, in the rocks, even man himself. God was the life force that kept everything 
going. This idea is rampant in New Age philosophy, and it made a concerted effort to make its way into the Adventist church through Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. But this belief was not new to Kellogg, nor was it new to Ellen White at the time. um, Herbert Douglas, in his book Messenger of the Lord, writes, Before the death of James White, in 1881, J.H. Kellogg shared with the Whites some theories of new light in understanding the Godhead. Ellen White responded forthrightly that she had met them before and that he should never teach such theories in our institutions. But despite the warnings from Sister White, Dr. Kellogg shared his new light with the General Conference in the year 1897. Now, note that year, 1897, because we're going to come back to it. Here's the response he got from those who are not grounded in the truth. What a wonderful thought that this mighty God that keeps the whole universe in order is in us. What an amazing thing that this almighty, all-powerful, all-wise God should make himself a servant of man by giving him free will, the power to direct the energy within his body. Does this sound a little bit familiar? We've heard it, haven't we? Then in 1899 General Conference, Kellogg again shared his belief on God and he said very clearly that God is in everything. Ellen White was in Australia at the time. She was right here. And she was alerted by revelations from God what was happening in Battle Creek. And she wrote letters weeks prior to the conference so that they would arrive right on time to be read at the conference. Now, isn't that incredible? Ellen White wrote those letters weeks, possibly months before, so that they could travel in a ship halfway around the world and and they were delivered right on the day when the conference was to start. And the, the first letter was entitled the true relation of God and nature. And she said, Nature is not God and never was God. As God's created work, it bears but a testimony of his power. We need to carefully consider this, for in their human wisdom, wise men of the world, not knowing not God, foolishly deify nature and the laws of nature. Note that underlined word there, power. What was the other word I asked you to remember? Spiritualism. We're going to come back to these shortly. They're going to become very important for this discussion. But this clear warning was ignored by Kellogg and many of his supporters. Then, a few years later, in 1902, Kellogg's world-famous Battle Creek Sanitarium was burnt to the ground. And Kellogg at once made plans to rebuild. And he requested funds from the church so he could rebuild. A.G. Daniels, who was the conference president at the time suggested that he write a book on physiology and healthcare that could be sold and raise money to build the sanitarium. But he warned Kellogg not to include his false ideas about God. Kellogg at once began to write the book, which he entitled The Living Temple, and that's the cover. That's the original cover. A review of the book revealed that Kellogg had not listened to Daniel's warning and included much of his pantheistic views about God. Statements like this, God is the explanation of nature, not a God outside of nature, but in nature, manifesting himself through and in all the objects, movements, and varied phenomena of the universe. This created a lot of controversy, and the General Conference Committee at last withdrew their support from the book being published. But Kellogg took out a personal order with the review, 
to get 5,000 copies printed. But then a month later, the Review and Held publishing house burnt to the ground and the plates were destroyed in the fire. So Ellen White was not surprised when she heard this news. Just 13 months before, she had written, I have almost been afraid to open the review, fearing to see that God had cleansed the publishing house by fire. The Review and Herald should never have taken up that order to publish the book, should they? Yet, despite this judgment from God, Kellogg got his book published by a commercial publisher. And the book began to circulate. And it was in this backdrop that Ellen White wrote, You are not definitely clear on the personality of God, which is everything to us as a people. You have virtually destroyed the Lord God himself. that, that, That is a stern warning. I entreat you to accept the message that I bear to you. I ask you to arouse to your danger. Who by searching can find out God? The theory that he is an essence pervading everything is one of Satan's most subtle devices. Now note that. You'd think that the idea of Christ being, that God being in nature was some glaring heresy. But here she says it's, it's one of the most subtle devices of Satan. Beware, even the very elect can be deceived. I warn you to, be, to beware of being led to accept theories leading to such a view. I tell you, my brother, the most spiritual-minded Christians are liable to be deceived by these beautiful, seducing, flattering theories. And unfortunately, many people today are being deceived by beautiful, seducing, flattering theories regarding the nature of God. Now, Kellogg received so much criticism from Ellen White and the pioneers that he decided to change his view. He, he, he had a new idea that he thought would fix all the problems in his, new, in his book. And he shared this understanding with A.G. Daniels, who later wrote a letter to Willie White, his, Ellen White's son, outlining the outcome of their discussion. Now take a look at this. Ever since the council closed, I felt that I should write to you confidentially regarding Kellogg's plans of revising and republishing the Living Temple. He said that some days before the c- coming to the council, he'd been thinking the matter over and could see that he'd made a slight mistake in expressing his views. He said that all along the way, he'd been troubled to know how to state the character of God and his relation to his created works. He then stated that his former views regarding the Trinity had stood in his way of making a clear and absolutely correct statement. But within a short time, he had come to believe in the Trinity and could now see pretty clearly where the difficulty was and he believed that he could clear the matter up satisfactorily. Now, here is the statement that anti-Trinitarians used to prove their point. He told me that he now believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And in his view, it was God the Holy Ghost and not God the Father that filled all space and every living thing. He said if he had believed this before writing the book, he could have expressed his views without giving the wrong impression the book now gives. I placed before him the objections I found to the teaching and tried to show him that the teaching was so utterly contrary to the gospel that that I could not see how it could be revised by changing a few expressions. I could not see how it would be possible for him to flop over and in the course of a few days fix the books. So Kellogg now says that he believes in the Trinity. And now he's able to see things clearly. And the anti-Trinitarians say, see, Kellogg believed in the Trinity. And Ellen White condemned him for it. 
And then they quote those statements I quoted to you earlier, condemning Kellogg, and they say that this is proof that the Trinity was the issue that Ellen White was dealing with. In fact, someone said to me that Kellogg was the pioneer of the Trinity doctrine in the Adventist church. Now, what's amazing to me is just a candid read of this letter should be obvious that this is not the issue at all. Daniel says, I placed before him the objections I found in the teaching and tried to show him that it was so utterly contrary to the gospel that I could not see how it could be revised by what? Changing a few expressions. So Daniel's understood that Kellogg's new belief in the, quote, Trinity was just a change of expressions and that the original issue was still there. But then the anti-Trinitarians will link this statement with another statement which seems on the surface to bolster their argument. This is Kellogg writing this time and he's writing to G.I. Butler and he says, As far far as I can fathom, the difficulty which is found in the living temple, the whole thing may be simmered down to the question, is the Holy Ghost a person? Now the plot thickens. You say no. I suppose that the Bible said for this reason that the personal pronoun he is used in speaking of the Holy Ghost. Sister White uses the pronoun he and is said in so many words that the Holy Ghost is the third person of the Godhead. How the Holy Ghost can be the third person and not a person at all is difficult for me to see. So there you go. Kellogg believes the Holy Spirit's a person. And therefore Ellen White condemned him because he believed the Holy Spirit is a person. But remember the, the previous letter I said, I read, Kellogg, or Daniel said that Kellogg believes in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, and God the Holy Ghost is the one that fills every space and every living thing. Now with this in mind, let's read another letter where Kellogg actually explains himself what he believes. I believe that this Spirit of God to be personality. You don't. He's writing to Prescott. But this is purely a question of definition. I believe the Spirit of God is a personality. You say, no, it is not a personality. Now, the only reason why we differ is because we differ in our, in our ideas of what a personality is. Your idea of a personality is perhaps that of the semblance to a person or a human being. This is not the scientific conception of personality and it is not the sense which I use the word. So Kellogg is saying, I don't believe the Holy Spirit is a physical person. Now, this is contrary to what the Trinitarians try and make us believe. They try and make us believe that, that Kellogg believed in what the church teaches today, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three distinct beings. But this is not at all what Kellogg believed. He, ex- he explained it more clearly further down in the same letter. The difference is this. When we say that God is in the tree, the word God is understood that the Godhead is in the tree, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Whereas the proper understanding, in order to preserve wholesome conceptions, should be presented, preser- sorry, that the wholesome preservations, wholesome concepts should be preserved in our minds. It is that God the Father sits on his throne in heaven, where God the Son is also, while God's life or spirit or presence is the all pervading power carrying out the will of God in the universe. Now, do I, I smell a rat, do you? Let's get this straight. Kellogg believed that the Father sits on the throne and so does the Son. Three, two distinct persons, right? But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is not a physical person. 
The Holy Spirit is God's life, spirit or presence which carries out the, the will of God in the universe. Now you tell me, which side of this debate is Kellogg on? It sounds very much to me like what any Trinitarians believe. It's a far cry from what the church believes today. And to say that the Trinity doctrine that the church believes today was, had anything at all to do with the Kellogg crisis is complete misrepresentation of the facts. But I'm telling you, there are DVDs out there on YouTube you can watch where they will present this to you, showing you that the Trinity, Trinity doctrine that the church teaches today is the issue that Kellogg was dealing with. But the question is, what was the fundamental error in Kellogg's beliefs? Ellen White clearly nails it in this quote here. I have been instructed. Now, when Ellen White says, I have been instructed, that means we're getting a direct revelation from heaven. I have been instructed by the heavenly messenger that some of the reasoning in the book Living Temple is unsound and that this reasoning would lead astray the minds of those who are not thoroughly established on the foundation Principles of present truth. Note that. Present truth. What is present truth to them at that point? It introduces that which is naught but speculation regard to the personality of God and where his presence is. No one on earth has right to speculate on this matter. So the problem with Kellogg was this. It was regard to the personality of God and where his presence is. Kellogg's understanding of the presence and personality of the Father and the Son was correct. Ellen White was very clear that the Father sits on the throne and so does the Son. But the problem lies with the nature of the Holy Spirit, just like Kellogg said in his letter. The idea that the Holy Spirit is a power that pervades all nature is the error that Ellen White is addressing here. But truth is often close to error. Consider these two statements. Right here, I'm going to read to you two statements. One of them is written by Ellen White, and the other is written by Kellogg. And I want you to tell me which is which. Every leaf, every blade of grass, every flower, every bird, every insect, as well as every beast or every tree, bears witness to the infinite versatility and inexhaustible resources of one all-pervading, all-creating, all-sustaining life. Statement A. Statement B. A mysterious life pervades all nature. A life that sustains the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity, that lives in the insect atom that floats on the summer breeze, that wings its f the flight of the swallow and feeds the young ravens that cry. That brings bud to blossom and flower to fruit. Now tell me, which is which? So, so statement A is, is what? Ellen White and statement B is Ellen White? Well, you are correct. Statement B is Ellen White. Statement a is Dr. Kellogg. Now, isn't that interesting? Clearly, Ellen White did not condemn Kellogg for saying that the power of God pervades all nature, because she herself said that. And it's true, the power of God does uphold nature. If God were to withdraw his power from nature, the whole thing would collapse immediately. But the problem is this. Kellogg confused the power of God and the life of God with the presence of God. Now, here is where the blow strikes home. If the Holy Spirit is not an individual, individual, but the power of God and the mind of God, then Kellogg's right. Elamite was very clear that the life and power of God does pervade all nature. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the life and power of God, now how was Kellogg wrong? 
You see, the logical conclusion, if you believe the Holy Spirit is not a person, but power, mind, Spirit of God, whatever you want to call it, if you believe that, then and if you, you, it's also very clear that the power of God is in nature, then the logical conclusion of that is that God is in nature. You, you can't escape that. Now, any Trinitarians don't necessarily think that in their minds, but if you draw their theory to its logical conclusion, that, that's what you have to, have to believe. And this is why the pioneers had so much trouble trying to debunk Kellogg's theory is because he was just taking their theory to its logical conclusion. But Ellen White had the clear answer. She said the Holy Spirit is a person. Not the power of God, a person. And when you say that, the whole theory falls apart. Kellogg said, yes, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, but he's not a person like the Father and the Son. He is the Holy Spirit's life, spirit, power and presence. Any Trinitarians say, yes, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, but he's not a person like the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is God's life, spirit and presence. Is it just me or there are some similarities here? Remember those two words I asked you to remember? Spiritualism and power. Are you seeing a connection? It was in this context that Ellen White wrote the following. This is taken from Testimonies to the Church containing messages and warning and instruction to the to Seventh-day Adventists. She said, the, the Father is in the fullness of the Godhead bodily and, it is, and is invisible to mortal sight. The Son is in all the fullness of the Godhead manifest. The Comforter which Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive Christ as a personal Saviour. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live a new life in Christ. Now notice very carefully here, the Holy Spirit is not the power of divine grace. The Holy Spirit manifests the power of divine grace. There is a difference. And then she says, there are three living persons. Now, and then she says, there are three powers. Now, when she says powers, she's not meaning powers, power as in power of divine grace. When she uses the word powers, she's using it in the context of a sovereign, a king or governing prince. When you look up the word powers in the 1828 dictionary, that is one of the definitions a sovereign or a leader, a ruler. So no matter which way you look at it, you cannot get away from the fact that there are three and that they are living. Now, if the Holy Spirit is a living person, but at the same time is the power of God, like the anti-Trinitarians want us to believe, then once again, Kellogg was right. If Ellen White was trying to say, like the anti-Trinitarians try and make her say, that the Holy Spirit is the power and mind of God that acts independently of his of God and is called the third person, then how does this prove Kellogg's theory false? The direct context of this statement is Kellogg, um, Ellen White is addressing Kellogg's false theories about God and she's here trying to debunk Kellogg by writing this. This makes no sense at all if she's trying to say that the Holy Spirit is not a person. But if, if the, she's saying the Holy Spirit is a person, then the whole, whole theory of Kellogg falls flat. 
isn't it rather coincidental, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, that the, the, when we study the timeline of Ellen White's writings, we see a change come about regarding her emphasising the three persons of the Godhead, and particularly the Holy Spirit, around the same time that Kellogg came out with his false view about God. Take a look at these statements here. Here is a list of Elamite statements emphasising the Holy Spirit as a third person. Note the dates. 18, 1893, 1897, 1891, in 1897. And we observe the same thing regarding Christ's eternal existence. Around 1897, we see an emphasis on the fact that he is eternal. So why the change in Elamite's writings? I believe the evidence is clear because of the false theories about God that were coming out. God saw it necessary to reveal more light regarding himself to debunk these false theories. So what is the Amiga of Deadly Heresies? This is a very, very interesting question. The alpha in the, of this belief was clearly that the Holy Spirit was the power and presence of God in creation. It started out being God, the Godhead being in, in creation, and then Kellogg changed his view and said, all right, no, it's actually the Holy Spirit. But Ellen White said it's the same. This is the basis, no, sorry, the basis of Kellogg's belief was spiritualism. Notice this statement here. I'm authorized to say, this is Ellen White speaking, I'm authorized to say to you that some of the sentiments regarding the personality of God as found in the living temple are opposed to the truth revealed in God's word. I've seen these fanciful results of God in apostasy, spiritualism, and free loveism. The free love tendencies of these teachings are so concealed that it's difficult to present them in their real character. Until the Lord presented it to me, I knew not what to call it, but I was instructed to call it unholy spiritual love. Now, isn't that interesting? From what we can conclude, we can, we can see that the character, we can see similar characteristics to the Amiga spiritualism, false ideas about the personality of God and an unholy spiritual love. We should see these. These are going to be the hallmarks of the Amiga. We saw them in the Alpha, and we will see them in the Amiga. But don't fall into the trap of pointing to one movement or one philosophy and say, that's the Amiga. Satan is far too clever for that. Satan has a whole range of ways in which he could get spiritualism to manifest itself in the church. We have seen spiritual formation and emergent church philosophy coming into the church. This is just another form of spiritualism. But how could Satan get those conservative, Bible-believing, Alan White-quoting fundamentalist Adventists to get into spiritualism? I believe he's done it very cleverly through the One True God movement. He has done this very successfully, and the fruits of this movement are yet to be clearly seen. But I will tell you one thing. I know exactly what Ellen White means when she says 
an unholy spiritual love. I've been in the movement. I know what it, I know. The whole movement is based on this emotional faith. They're very dependent upon the literal father-son relationship. If someone dares to imply that the relationship between the father and the son could be on a, 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 a deeper level, the immediate response is that we're destroying the love of God, we're destroying the plan of redemption. They say things like, how can God be loving and, and not give up a literal son? But they won't even consider the fact that the, the father-son relationship could be on a much deeper level. They, their faith is very much based on feeling. But we need our feelings based on the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So this is why I left the anti-Trinitarian movement. I believe the evidence is stacked up against it. Here is a summary of the flaws that I see in this teaching. Number one, that it robs Christ of his eternal existence. The only time in the Bible that we see Christ being born is in Bethlehem. If Christ came into existence, what stops us from saying, going to the next step and saying that he could cease to exist? This lies very close to other false doctrines. The idea that Christ came into existence is a doctrine that the Jehovah's Witnesses hold. They take the next step and say that Christ was created. But is there a tangible difference between that and what the anti-Trinitarians believe today? No one has been able to give me a straight answer on that one. Remember, God does not procreate like we do. There is no mother. And I must say here, if you're going to make this literal thing, and take the literal line and say he was literally the son of God, then where's the mother? You know, When you start saying Christ is a literal son of God, then how are we to interpret this in the regards to humanity or divinity? Um, secondly, or thirdly, I should say, it casts mystery over the concept of eternity. Once I, I, believed, I came to believe this doctrine, eternity was no longer eternity. It was like this mystery that couldn't be explained. Christ could be eternal and yet he could have a beginning. And if, if people have to resort to such theories as this to maintain their position, then I think it, it, it's causing question the validity of the, of the teaching. We need a clear thus saith the Lord. Um, fourthly, it brings into question the greatness of Christ's sacrifice in becoming man and the whole concept of the plan of redemption. And it does this in a number of ways. If Instead of God coming to die, why did he send his son? This doctrine teaches that God couldn't die and therefore he had to send his son. Right away this hints that Jesus is lesser God than the Father and secondly, it's a problem that we shouldn't even be trying to solve. We simply need to read what the Bible says and accept it. Thirdly, it makes a mockery of Christ sending the Comforter. If the Holy Spirit is Christ in another form, then Christ is still omnipresent, despite the fact that Ellen White very clearly says that he was cumbered by humanity and that he gave up his omnipresence. It also makes meaningless the idea of Christ saying that he promised to send another Comforter, which would testify of him. And fourthly, instead of an eternal bond between the Father and the Son being broken up, this doctrine teaches that Christ's bond with the Father was not eternal and had a beginning. Anti-Trinitarians must... The doctrine of the anti-Trinitarianism rests its teaching on principles not clearly stated in Scripture. They say that Christ had a beginning in eternity past, and yet there is not one clear biblical statement to support that idea. 
It's only assumed because the words begotten and son are used re- regarding Christ. And those who uphold this teaching must take the Bible texts and Ellen White quotes out of context to support their beliefs. When I examined the proof texts, I had to admit that in, in most cases, the verses were taken out of context or twisted to suit their agenda. But at the end of the day, what matters most, God is far above our understanding. At the end of the day, we can only understand what God has revealed. God is far beyond our understanding. And what's not revealed is not important for our salvation. Secondly, please don't make this your focus. And this is a trap that anti-Trinitarians fall into. That as soon as they accept this belief, it becomes their one mission and goal in life to convert everyone they meet to this doctrine. So when you stand at the judgment seat of God, God's not going to say to you, what's your understanding of the Godhead? He's going to say, have you given up every idol in your life? Have you accepted Christ as your saviour? Are you, are you becoming, learning to become meek and humble? Are you learning to give up your pride of opinion? These things will keep you out of heaven. You know, if the anti-Trinitarians would just keep this theory to themselves and not try and spread it and split the church over it, I wouldn't be standing here presenting it to you. We all just need to learn to agree to disagree and get on with the work. Satan brings these theories out here so that he will distract us from the mission that God has given us, and that is the three messages and spreading the, the, the truth to the world. If, if we get caught up in arguing about the Holy Spirit or the Godhead, we're going to stop presenting the gospel to the world and Satan will, will have triumphed. Rather than that, let's agree to disagree and let's focus on doing the work and then any unanswered questions will be revealed when Christ comes back. So I want to challenge you today to study your Bible, spend more time studying God's Word, not trying to satisfy your curiosity about the finer points of the Godhead, but to to get to know Christ as a personal Saviour, to understand this is eternal life. Let's close with prayer. Father God, thank you for revealing truth to us. And I pray that we will accept the truth as it is written, rather than getting into arguments and debates over what is truth. Help us, Lord, to stay focused on the mission of the church, to spread the three angels' messages so that we can all come home and then you will reveal yourself to us more fully. Bless us, we pray, and I pray for each one here that you will lead and guide them as they continue to seek to understand you and to get to know you better. And we've asked this in the all-sufficient name of Jesus, and for his sake, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.